please stand if you are able for a reading from God's holy word. Today's scripture reading is from John 10, 11 through 18. Please read with me the verses in bold. I am the good shepherd. The shepherd, good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own his sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this, the, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Whew, I think I can breathe a little bit. Uh, I think I was, during the service, really confused as to what was going on, and I think it's because it's my first time inside. Um, and again, we haven't, hadn't done this in 16 months, um, which is a long time to remember like what you used to do. But just to do offering again and to do, do the passing of the peace again and, and all these different elements of our service, I think I was so confused, like, what's going on? What, what part? You know, and, and Brad's not here to hold down the ship, and so I'm just trying to figure out what to do. But uh, thankful to be here, thankful to be worshiping, uh, so thankful that uh, we get to be indoors. Um, as I mentioned, my name is Daniel, and again, I'm, I'm one of the pastors uh, that serves at uh, Grace Sacramento, and I think I have said this uh, a few times, and I think I just, I wanted to say it again, is I love this church, and uh, this would be a church that I would come to even if I was not the pastor. Um, it's been such a blessing to, uh, to me and to my family, and so just so thankful to be here. Well, this morning, uh, we're looking at John chapter 10, uh, Jesus' use of imagery or uh, his use of metaphors and similes in the, the New Testament is pretty astounding. Uh, Jesus' use of images from an agrarian society is quite common, and it was in the context of his life and ministry that he shares these things because this is what people knew. He would often use metaphors from agriculture like wheat and chaff, mustard seeds, vines and fruits, grapes and figs, and olive too. Or think about the mention of animals in the Gospels. There is a rooster that crows. There are the bird, birds of the air that, that God feeds. Or the Spirit of God that descends like a dove at the baptism of Jesus. At the start of his ministry, Jesus goes out into the wilderness and stays among the wild beasts. There's a donkey that Jesus rides into Jerusalem a week before his death. Or how about dogs? Dogs that eat from the crumbs that fall from the master's table. There are pigs. The most prominent one I could think of, and it's again mentioned a few times, but I think the parable 
of the prodigal son. The son who runs away from home, spends his wealth on wild living, and ends up feeding swine. And then there are cats. Just kidding. There are no cats in the Gospels. But in all seriousness, Jesus hates cats. Just kidding again. I apologize. If you're a cat owner, I completely apologize. Uh, that is not what I meant. Cats. And then there is the animal most mentioned in all of Scripture. So often that whether it's the word sheep or lamb or ram is mentioned 550 times throughout Scripture. That's a lot. More than any other animal, it's the sheep. The prominence of sheep in the Old and New Testaments grows out of two realities, I think. Sheep were important to the nomads and agricultural life of the Hebrew. You know this, again, uh, story after story in the Old Testament. There is some illustration, some picture, some metaphor of sheep. Sheep are given as gifts, if you remember, from, from Jacob to Esau. David had sheep. It's a sheep that's found in a caught in the thicket, a ram caught in the thicket. In Genesis 22, by Abraham and Isaac. But the other important reality, I think, is that sheep are used throughout the scriptures to symbolically refer to the people of God, to you and to me. Sheep were a familiar part of life for the people to whom Jesus speaks, and to this Jesus claims, I am the good shepherd. Now John is carefully crafted book that is full of in, intentional references. Uh, John loves to foreshadow things that will happen later. If you remember the very onset of the book of John, John the Baptist will say, Behold, the Lamb who comes to take away the sins of the whole world. Or how about the last chapter when Jesus meets with Simon Peter and says, Feed my sheep, feed my lamb. He loves to call back words or phrases from earlier in the book. He builds theological towers on top of foundations he has laid elsewhere in the gospel. In other words, we can't read one piece of the Gospel of John without keeping in mind the rest of the book. And so as we look at the 10th chapter of John's Gospel, we cannot do it without understanding it in context. You'll see what I mean as we go through it together. One of the distinctive elements of the teaching of Jesus is the way he expresses important truths about himself. And I think we talked about this the last two weeks. Uh, his character, his mission, who he is, and what he has come to do. And so particularly in the Gospel of John are seven I am statements introduced in the Old Testament in Exodus chapter 3 where God introduces himself to Moses with the expression, I am. I am 
who I am. And this is significant because Moses says to Jesus or to God, uh, who shall I send me to you? And God says, tell them I am sent me to you. And it's a self-revelation. It's, this, uh, it's a revelation of, of God's self about his character and his mission, about his relationship with Israel. And he's telling the people of Israel, you can count on me. I've always been, I am, and I will be with you forever. And here's the essence of the name of God. And again, there's so much significance and meaning and depth in the name of, of God. I am. Meaning that he's been there from the very beginning of time and will continue to exist. And that same I am, the same pre-existent God, the one who has existed in eternity past, will always be with you. There's a personal nature to his name. There's something significantly intimate about who he is and the name that he gives to the people of Israel. I can be known because I am. And the same way he introduces himself in Exodus 3, this statement becomes a way to connect God personally and was used throughout Israel's history to convey that God always was, always is, and always will be. And so when Jesus, he identifies himself this way as God, it's a pretty radical claim. Each of these seven I am statements follows a basic pattern. They are written as metaphors in which one of the key elements is to be uh, Jesus expressed as I am. Jesus always provides an explanatory, I gotta slow down, explanatory uh, statement with it so there's no misunderstanding to its meaning and clear to his listeners. And again, he, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And I am the door. I am the vine in John chapter 15. And so we're continuing in this series, the short series we're calling In His Own Words. But before we get to it, I want to give you a little bit of context to chapter 10. As I mentioned before, they're all interconnected, and it flows right out of chapter 9. Now, it seems obvious, 10 follows 9, but it follows in a, in a different sense, not in that uh, it follows uh, the, the previous chapter, but it follows in that the same crowd is there when Jesus is, is explaining who he is to the crowds. Uh, Pastor Brad covered this last week about the healing of the blind men. The same culprits are there, particularly the religious leaders have a deep hatred and animosity towards Jesus. And as they come to chapter 10, Jesus is still talking to them. They're all still there. The blind man who had just been healed is still there. The disciples of Jesus are still there. The crowds of Jesus who had come to witness this miracle are still there by the location where this healing takes place. And the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders of that day are still there. The religious leaders are upset because Jesus had gained such popularity. They were upset that Jesus was claiming to be God. And they were upset because Jesus did all of this on the Sabbath day a day they were to keep holy, 
according to the Ten Commandments. So why would Jesus do this? And according to the Pharisees, someone who does this, they reason, must not be from God or be God. So in the healing of the blind man, Jesus would imply that it was the Pharisees who were blind, not physically as the blind man had been, but a spiritual one, a willful choice to stand in opposition to God. And so again, Jesus is using the crowd and the Pharisees who are there, the Sadducees who are there to make a comparison, which I think, again, when I read through all of the scriptures, and especially in Jesus' teachings, there's always a comparison. And so when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, in fact, he was continuing his judgments of the religious leaders of that day who should have been looking after the weak, but they weren't. The religious leaders were barely aware of this blind man who was there, that he even existed at all. Or the claim that they stood between God and the people of God and yet didn't realize that, that God was there in living color among them when he intervened and gave sight to the blind man. Or what sort of caregivers these men were, the worst kind, they ought to be shepherds Yet they acted like predators. They were more interested in their power and in their status than they were about their sheep. And in this context, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. As I mentioned, every story Jesus tells is a story of comparison, a story of contrast. Every parable, every teaching, every description about himself. Think about it this way, the story of the sheep and the goats, the wheat and the chaff, the elder son and the younger son, the foundation built on sand and the solid foundation, treasures on earth versus treasures we lay up for ourselves in heaven. Good fruit versus bad fruit. A heavy burden versus a light one. Seed that falls on good soil and the seed that falls among less suitable places. Paying taxes to Caesar or giving God what is his. The light of the world who comes to give sight to the blind. And so on and so on and so forth. And so this descriptor, the good shepherd, is a contrast between himself, who is actually good, and those who call themselves good. But as I mentioned, more interested in their own power and their position and status than they were about caring for the sheep of God. Contrary to false shepherds who are the strangers, who are the thieves, who are the robbers, we see in verses 11 through 18, again, who are the hired hand, the true shepherd cares for his sheep. So this picture, everybody would affirm, they would all say that's exactly what a shepherd does. He has his own sheep. He has the responsibility for those sheep. He puts them in a safe place. He calls them out of the fold. He calls them by name. He names them. They know his voice. They follow him. They don't follow a stranger. They have to be protected from the danger of thieves and robbers. They are led out by the shepherd to places where they can eat and drink. That's a good shepherd. I picture of salvation. 
I'm not going to tell you this morning anything you don't know already, but I'm going to tell you what's here in the text. Three simple things. First, the good shepherd, he dies for them. Second, he knows them and he loves them. And third, he brings other sheep into the fold. And I'll explain that in a moment. But I think the first one is of utmost importance. This is the kind of God we have. Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. In contrast, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. The emphasis here is, I am the shepherd, the good one. As if to say, in contrast to all the bad ones, he is not just another shepherd, he is the shepherd, the good one, the one who is preeminently excellent. He is above all shepherds. There is no one like him. The language is reminiscent of Psalm 23. You may be familiar with Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. But do you see the problem for his listeners? David, the author of 23, Psalm 23, described God as his shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. And yet here, Jesus uses that same language of David, but refers to himself. Jesus equates himself with God. We may not notice that upon first glance, but you can be sure that everyone who was there understood the imagery and understood the claim. Jesus was not just an hourly worker that would run, the, at, the, uh, run at the slightest sign of danger. Jesus is making clear that his father is the owner of the sheep. He's not going to let them be injured. Owners have a vested interest in their sheep. Owners fight to the death. Hirelings do not. Jesus has a rightful claim to us, and that guarantees that he will protect us. My friends, every other religion, every other faith tells us what we do for God. Every other faith tradition says what we need to do in order to please God. But it's only our faith, it's only the Christian faith that sees Christ doing something for us. It's the only faith I can think of where God is doing something for his people. He lays down his life for the sheep. He's selfless, he's sacrificial. He gives of, him, of himself. He provides salvation and protection he feeds them and, and nourishes them. He rescues them. He does all these things. And again, only in the scriptures, I think, when we read through the Old and New Testament, there's this clear picture of a God who acts on the people of God. In all of the scriptures, when we read through it over and over again, it's about the, the faithful promises of God. It's about God's relentless pursuit of us. Every other religion tells us what we do for God, but only Christ tells us 
what he does for us. And that's why I think Jesus refers to himself as the good shepherd. I care for my sheep. I lay down my life for my sheep. I am the true shepherd or the owner. He cares about the sheep. It's not just a job for him. It's his very life. He develops relationships with those sheep. They know him and, and he knows them and they're loved by him. Why does Jesus die? We just read through Isaiah 53. For the transgressions of his people. Matthew 1, 21, You shall call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. His sheep. An atonement that's taking place. And what's fascinating for me, as I read through over and over again, John chapter 10, and I did that this week, and again, it just dawned on me as I was reading again, here's a picture of, of Jesus, the good shepherd, who is both the sheep and also the shepherd. The one who is creator of the universe, and the one who descends and becomes like one of us. In John chapter 1, he, he descends. He condescends to be with his people. No other religion, I think, no other faith tells us that they have this kind of a God the one who would stoop. In John 13, again, in the same gospel, again, that Jesus would disrobe himself, gird himself with a towel, and wash the feet of his disciples. Do you know any other kind of God that does that? There's no God like this one. He lays his down, life down for his sheep. In verse 14, to continue, he says, I am the good shepherd, and I love this part so much. I know my own, and my own know me. I know my own, and my own know me. The same language of the Old Testament, the same Revelation of himself before Moses, I am who I am. Or about Abraham, who was a friend of God. Or Enoch, who, who walked with God. Or Jacob, who wrestled with God. Or David, King David, you know of the Old Testament, who was a man after God's own heart. And these images of of men and women in the scriptures who had a relationship with God, again, where, where Jesus would say, I know my own, and my own know me. Who is the true shepherd, who has developed relationship with those sheep. They're known to him. They're loved by him. He knows them by name. I'd like to say I... I'd like to say I, I know people's names, but I would be lying if I, I did. Um, I would be lying if I say I'm, I'm good with names. I try to be. I, when you introduce yourself to me, I will say your name like seven times in my head so I can get it. But Jesus, without a name tag, I can see name tags on, on many of you. Even without a name tag, he knows you. He knows all about you. 
The only religion, I think, where there is a personal relationship. The only religion that says that God knows me. The only religion that says God loves me. There's this great passage in Psalm 139. This is a, a Psalm of David. In Psalm 139, the psalmist writes, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high and cannot attain it. He says, where shall I go from your spirit? Where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, there you are, uh, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. And on and on he tells me, uh, the psalmist tells us that he knows us better than a spouse, better than a father or a mother, better than a best friend and someone who's known you your whole life. And what's fascinating about this God, again, this God who desires relationship with us, he, who knows us and, and loves us. And again, this is the fascinating part of this whole thing, which I think is the, the truth of the gospel that, that weaves itself throughout all of Scripture, and, in, and especially here in John chapter 10, is that He knows us and yet still loves us. Amen? He knows us. I mean, think about it this way. If your spouse knew all the deepest secrets about your life, would she still or he still love you? Or your best friends, would they love you? And this is the gospel, I think, uh, at its core, is that God knows us. There are no secrets. There is nothing hidden. There are no thoughts that we can hide from God. He knows us, and yet he still wants to hire us. He knows about our past, and yet he still wants to adopt us. He knows all of our shortcomings. He knows every sin we've ever committed or will ever commit. And he still loves us. My friends, that's the beauty of the gospel message. You know, and I've heard people say, God loves me just the way I am. And if, if I can maybe just kind of tweak that a little bit and say that God loves me despite the way I am. That's the good shepherd. That he knows us. And that he loves us. Tim Keller, a preacher, pastor, he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known, to be fully known and truly loved 
It's a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense. It humbles us out of self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty life can throw at us. To be fully known and truly loved. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. And just as the Father knows me and I know the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep. And again, it's repeated another time in the Scripture. In verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. The third point, I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice, so there will be one flock, one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life. There it is, that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. And again, here is Jesus claiming, I am not going to be the victim of a murder. Here is Jesus saying, I'm going to die voluntarily on my own accord. And I'll be raised up. And here is one who has the power over life and death. Life over, a power over life and death. And Jesus says, I will lay it down and I will take it right back up again. This charge I've received from my Father. But the first part of this, this section here, is says, I have sheep that are not of this fold. And again, the Jews who are listening to this, again, the Pharisees and the scribes, again, those religious leaders felt such an exclusive privilege being part of the people of God, the chosen people of God. They were God's elect. They were handpicked by God. And so the religious leaders at that time were thinking, we are the people of God. And everyone else is second class, a second class citizen. And here Jesus comes, and here you and I are sitting in this very place to claim that thing which Jesus says, I have come so that other sheep who are not of this fold can be of this fold as well. Jesus didn't come to save Israel alone. He started with the lost sheep of Israel, but it's clear in the scriptures, his reach went much further. In, Psalm, in uh, Genesis chapter 12, God says to Abraham, I will bless you so that. The key words, I think, of the whole thing, so that you might be a blessing to the nations. Israel was supposed to be that shepherd. Israel was supposed to be that light. Israel was supposed to be that bread. And again, you'll know this when you read through the Old Testament that, that God had chosen Israel to be the vine. The vine. And that people would come to, to know him through the branches. And because they were unfaithful and because they were unsex, unsuccessful, Jesus comes in John chapter 15 and says, I am the true vine. Who is it that Jesus came for? Anybody outside Israel. The Gentiles. The nations. And this is stunning. This is unacceptable to the Jews. 
because this is, again, more fuel for their animosity because they resent Gentiles. Again, they resented those who were, who were non-Jews. And again, they believed that Gentiles were permanently outside of salvation, the covenant and the promises of God. And yet, Isaiah 42, we read in verse 6, I am the Lord. You have call, I have called you in righteousness. This is God speaking to the Messiah. I will hold you by the hand and watch over you. I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners from the dungeon and those who dwell in darkness from the prison. And again, there's a messianic promise that the Messiah would bring salvation to the Gentiles. Anyone who would believe. Anyone who would believe that Jesus is the Good Shepherd. Amen. 